So, um, as some of you might have heard, uh, this book has got very little in it about Roger Federer. So I'm sorry to disappoint tennis fans. We'll make a real effort to bring it back to tennis at the end. But I thought really I'd talk tonight about uh, one of the main characters in the book, that is to say, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And also, I want to make uh, a great claim on behalf of Turin, one of the most beautiful cities, if uh, beautiful and underrated cities, if not just in Italy, perhaps in Europe. And Nietzsche arrived there in Turin in April 1888. He was 44 and the weather was bad, but then it improved uh, to the extent that by October of that year, he thought it was the most beautiful light he'd ever encountered, a real miracle of beauty and light, he said. And there was this blazing light of unending prospects in the darkening twilight, the shortening days of his sanity. Turin was the, the final stop on a journey that had led this respectable, rather priggish professor to abandon his academic job as a philologist to become a kind of wanderer and vagabond. The highlight, without question, the happiest period of his life came early on when he was enthusiastically admitted to the circle of Richard Wagner. Uh, because they felt, Wagner's circle felt that he could provide some kind of philosophical underpinning for the composer's vast ambitions. Then, of course, came the fallout for multiple reasons, gathering mutual doubts about the value of each other's work, uh, Nietzsche's hatred of Wagner's increasingly virulent anti-Semitism, and the most terrible of all things from Nietzsche's point of view, somehow he got wind of Wagner's idea that his poor eyesight was the result of compulsive masturbation. It was a devastating thing for, for Nietzsche. But I should add that his trouble with his eyes was just one of his physical problems. He was plagued by headaches and his years of wandering were marked by extreme loneliness. Also, as he published book after book, he achieved a quite stunning lack of success. He, was, he had no audience at all. He was horribly conscious of the discrepancy between the value he put on his work. He said that also Sprach Zarathustra was the greatest gift ever given to mankind. He was conscious of the disparity between that and the sense of it, the almost lack of sense, complete lack of sense of it registered by the rest of the world. Now, as we've heard tonight, I mean, a writer of any stripe needs to retain a degree of confidence in order to keep working. But you worry also that given the value gap, you might be a megalomaniac or a lunatic. And in Nietzsche's case, the solution was to inflate still further his notion of the unprecedented importance of his books in order to explain their lack of appeal. Indifference to his work, in other words, was another symptom of how pathological the need for it had become. It was a sane strategy that seemed a further manifestation of insanity. 
And all of this came to a head in Turin as he conceived grander and grander plans for a series of books. Uh, uh, the, at one time, he had a, a, a title, The Revaluation of All Values, quite an ambitious scheme. But then he abandoned these in favor of shorter bulletins and dispatches, Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist, and a sort of autobiography, Ecce Homo, with its wonderful chapter titles, Why I Am So Clever, Why I Write Such Excellent Books, and then the final one, Why I Am a Destiny. So he was flickering between, at this point, between insights of genius and a demented sense of frustrated greatness, which often manifested itself in really quite small and pitiful ways. He became convinced, for example, that the shopkeepers saved their best grapes for him. And then one morning in January 1889, he came out onto the square where his apartment was and saw a taxi driver beating his horse and famously or mythically flew uh, through his arms around the neck of this old nag and then collapsed, uh, never regained his sanity. Uh, he never recovered. He lived on, though, until 1900, cared for at first by his mother and then preserved as a helpless effigy by his sister Elizabeth. He said about immortality that one must die several times while still alive, but I think his case raises the rather awful possibility that one's posthumous life can begin while you're still alive. Elizabeth, his sister, assumed not just control of her brother's helpless body, but tragically of his body of work, overseeing the transformation of a writer who had written, and I quote, of the accursed anti-Semitism that had been the reason for a radical break between me and my sister. Um, she managed to transform this into Nietzsche's reputation so that he became someone indelibly associated with Hitler and the rise of Nazism. Uh, Nietzsche had said earlier that the prospect of meeting his sister again was the most abhorrent aspect of the eternal recurrence. Now, this is Nietzsche's key idea, the eternal recurrence, the idea being that you will live your life over and over again every moment of it throughout all eternity. And it's a, a strange idea, but paradoxically, I think if you give yourself to this notion, then what it does, it really insists that there is only this one life. There is no escape from it. Uh, it was, he thought, the ultimate philosophy of affirmation, which is extraordinary when you consider how utterly threadbare his own life was. Since the eternal recurrence insists that every moment is endlessly relived, Nietzsche's final phase of euphoria, that mix of delusion and lucidity, will, it will fade in an instant and be followed by the decade spent as a drooling zombie, and then by his boyhood, by the long days and nights of terrible loneliness, the constant illnesses and headaches, the renewed hopes always followed by fresh disappointments, and the gradually increasing sense of having been catastrophically overlooked. The only thing not included in this endless carousel would be confirmation of his eventual posthumous global fame and influence, the satisfaction of knowing that everything he predicted for himself, even in his most delusional moments, came to pass. 
And the gain, well, I guess the gain would be that he'd be spared all knowledge of the moment on the 2nd of November, 1933, when Hitler made a ceremonial visit to the archive where Elizabeth presented him with her brother's walking stick. The first time he mentions the eternal return is in The Gay Science. It's a famous passage, which I'll read to you now. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life, as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god and never have I heard anything more divine? It's worth mentioning at this point Nietzsche's idea of the ubermensch, the overman, another very widely misconsidered, uh, misunderstood idea. Nietzsche's idea of the overman or the ubermensch is someone who has succeeded in overcoming themselves and has come to terms with this idea of your life being lived over and over again. Now, I have this memory many years ago watching Wimbledon when Boris Becker passed his best, was having trouble in a match. And I remember him shouting in this kind of Teutonic rage, Uber, Uber. And uh, he wasn't prophetically anticipating that weird loop that you can get in when you've ordered a car and it's five minutes away, but then a minute goes by and it's still five minutes away. And then weirdly, it suddenly becomes six or seven minutes away. A sort of weird sort of uh, version of the, the loop of the uh, loop of time. Uh, nor was he saying sort of Deutschland über alles. All he really meant was get the ball over the net. Uh, but... I don't know. It's, uh, it seems to me there's a sort of connection uh, that word that word Uber enables us to make between Boris Becker and uh, Nietzsche. Because remember, Nietzsche says, you know, if somebody said you've got to live this life over and over again, wouldn't it be terrible? So, yeah, you think of Boris Becker tonight. I mean, I don't know whether he has access to the Internet, in which case, you know, there he is in jail. He can he can listen to us. That would be a highlight. But otherwise, I mean, this is a phase of his life that he doesn't want to relive over and over again. You know, it's pretty terrible what's happened to him. And he's, he's sort of younger than me. It's, you know, tough. You know, he's got a he's leading a terrible life tonight. But remember that other uh, moment from that passage of Nietzsche's that I, re I read when he says, have you ever known a moment in your life? when you might say to the demon who said you've got to live your life over and over again, every moment of it, have you ever known a moment when you would say you're a god and I've never have I heard anything more divine? So think of Boris Becker as a teenager winning Wimbledon. Think of him winning Wimbledon three times, you know, by, the, by his early 20s. And these are moments of such greatness, such wonderful moments that I doubt if anyone listening tonight has ever experienced a, a, a moment like that or think of somebody who conceivably achieved an even greater degree of uh, of uh, sort of specialness think of Diego Maradona almost winning the World Cup single-handedly and you know those moments are so great that they can validate uh, an entire life it's just tough if you're an athlete because then you have to spend 
I don't know, maybe 40, 50 years living in the wake of your legend. I'll just say a final thing about the eternal recurrence. You can't pick and mix. You can't just take the good bits. You have to accept the bad bits too. And, you know, we all remember that moment when Roger squandered two match points against Djokovic a couple of Wimbledons ago. But in order to have done things differently on those points, he'd have had to have done everything differently um, in the many uh, Grand Slam titles that he that he did win. And I guess there's a final thing I'd mentioned trying to establish this connection between uh, tennis and Nietzsche when it's this. I mean, there are so many lovely traditions at Wimbledon, but there's one, there are a couple that I'll, I'll mention that are particularly lovely. Uh, at Wimbledon, always, as many of you know, the first match on centre court always features the winner of the last singles match from the previous year, that is to say, the defending men's champion. And in addition, the two electronic scoreboards on centre court continue to show the results of the previous uh, uh, singles winners, men and women, uh, until very shortly from the previous year, until very shortly uh, before the start of the following year's tournament. So like this, it seems as if there is no tennis or time outside the tournament. There's nothing but an endless loop of Wimbledon fortnights. Uh, and what happened actually is that COVID broke the loop so that both scoreboards stuck in 2019. Uh, they remained showing uh, the victors there until 2021. So 2020 ceased to exist. Uh, and they were just left sort of displaying these results like, I don't know, like uh, the last syllable of recorded time, let's say. And that's it from me. Thank you for listening.